little tough for you guys because you're going to make it. It's a long day. It's lots of information thrown at you. Uh, you're going to be good. Yes, sir. I'd just like to remind you uh, student taking this requirement that the time is annual by the afternoon. So you need to be prepared. Be sure you're studying tonight. It's reviewing your notes. Um, all test questions will come from the classroom discussions and lectures. So not from the reading. So you focus on those. Okay? Uh, do your readings too. But, um, there is no rest of the really this week. So, um, or next week. Or next week. Uh, we'll hang in there. You'll make it. You'll, you'll make it. I did a few block classes in my day, but I don't think I ever did, did a one week block class as a student. I've had to teach them uh, since coming here, but I've never done a full, full block class in one week. Uh, you can make it, it can be done. Not easily, but it can be done. Uh, well, let's pray this morning before we get started. Just ask God to lead us and direct us in the ways we should go. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and mercy, Lord. We thank you for bringing us here. Uh, Lord, I thank you for each student that's here, God, and I pray for their uh, families, for their loved ones that uh, are not here. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be with them during this time of uh, their absence. And Lord, I just pray that uh, you would guide and direct as only you can. Lord, I pray that you would give understanding to the students. Father, lots of information coming their way in a short length of time. God, I pray that you would help them to process it, Lord, apply it, uh, put it away in the storehouse of knowledge, Lord, so that whenever they come up against issues and situations on the field, uh, Lord, these concepts will come back and help to guide and direct them, Lord, in, in what they should do. God, we again just thank you for the privilege of being here. Uh, Lord, we thank you for these students, Lord, and for our time today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. My wife uh, was not raised in Pentecostal. Her home church is a Methodist church. And you always knew that the pastor, their pastor, when we go to church, that it was always interesting. They always would finish right at 12 o'clock. I mean, it didn't matter what he was preaching on. It was over 12. And as soon as he, they said amen, the bells would go, the bell tower. Go 12 times, and that would be the end of the service. Everybody would leave. And I used to think they must practice to get that kind of timing down. Of course, I grew up in an Assembly God church, and time was very relative. As far as when you got out, it just kind of depended. You know, so I spent many a hungry Sunday at 1230. Oh, what's this going to get over? Uh, as a child. But, uh, yeah, that was good time uh, yesterday we were talking a, a good bit about culture shock, and I'm sure that you'll touch on these issues of culture shock and issues of adjustment and uh, as missionary life and the other classes that, that you do here or what the other teachers will be teaching on. I'm sure that in uh, probably missionary life, uh, they'll touch on that as well. Uh, my uh, sister Barbara, when I talked yesterday, or, or Dr. Barbara, and I talked yesterday just a minute, and I uh, said, so, well, you can't really overdo that. It's a, it's a big issue, so I knew that she was going to touch on it as well. But we finished off yesterday talking about culture shock, looking at Hebert's model uh, where you're coming in, your expectations are high, you hit new things, and you have to come this way, and you wind up in this line here, the wanting to, uh, the desire to go home. Uh, and you want to get above that desire to where you can survive in that place. 
And today we want to talk about or start talking about some tools that you can use to help you to adjust. Uh, adjusting is possible. Uh, it's not impossible. It is possible. There may be times uh, in frustration when you're thinking it's just not going to happen. Uh, that it's just, uh, I'm just never going to get to where I can speak the language. I'm never going to get to where I can uh, understand these people. Uh, but God will bring that understanding, and it, it takes time. I, I shared with you yesterday the difficulties that I had in language learning. Uh, and, and I was one of those ones that it just took time. I would have to try to recall a word, I don't know how many times, before I would actually have it in my head. Uh, like I had to say businessman, I remember I used to have to go, a man uh, or lady who works for a big business. Uh, and I'd have to say that in Thai because I didn't couldn't remember the word nocturnigan, which is businessman. Sorry about that, lost my computer. Uh, which means businessman. Let's see if I get to him back on. Sure, why I did that. But in Thai, I'd have to use all those words. I'd be saying something like, and I'd say all of that just to say, not good again, because it would be a person who works for a big company. Uh, but eventually, that word, which I remember, I can't even remember the day it was there. I was talking to a Thai person, and all of a sudden, I needed to say, reference someone who was a businessman. And I ended up saying, uh, it just came, not good again. You know, wow, that's cool. That's the way, way it'll happen. It'll happen. You can adjust. But there's ways that we have to approach it in order for that to happen or to make that adjustment uh, the best way. Adjustment is possible because of a perspective that's built on concepts of ethnocentrism and cultural relativism. Uh, ethnocentrism is the practice of interpreting and evaluating behavior and objects by reference to the standards of one's own culture rather than those of the culture in which they belong or the one in which they're living. Uh, ethnocentrism is normal. It's normal for us to do this because that's the way we grew up. Uh, all of us, to a certain degree, are ethnocentric. Uh, typically, when we hear the word, it's used in a negative context because typically, if someone is extremely ethnocentric, they can't appreciate somebody else's culture. Uh, they are using it at a time when they're upset, they uh, only see things through their own cultural eyes, and they're not willing to accept someone else. And if you're extreme ethnocentric and, and you think your culture is better than everybody else's, uh, but we have to, have to realize that we're all ethnocentric to some degree because that's where we're raised. That's what's normal to us. And what we have to do is couple ethnocentrism with cultural relativism. Which cultural relativism is the practice of interpreting and evaluating behavior and objects by reference to the normative and value standards of the culture, which behavior in which it belongs. Now, for me and as we as Christians, we're not going to be extreme cultural relativists. An extreme, uh, someone that's an extreme relativist means you, you go the complete opposite direction of ethnocentrism. And then all of a sudden, everything is relative, and what is good and what is bad is judged from within that culture. And there are some cultures in the world where uh, 
abuse or physical abuse is common. It's cultural. Uh, I don't know. I'll use an, I've heard in Africa. I've never been to Africa, but I've heard in Africa that there's some tribes that it's common for the men to beat their wives physically. And it's just it's part of husband and wife is what expected in, in the community. The wives expect it. The men do it. They treat their wives poorly. Uh, but we as Christians uh, recognize that that's not under God's intention. That may be part of the culture, but it's a negative part of that culture. Now, a cultural relativist would look at this, and they would say, uh, that the practice, they'd say, well, because it is okay within that culture, then it's okay. You know, what's right and wrong is, is determined within the culture. Uh, when I was in, in Laos, I got to know people at the U- U.S. Embassy. Uh, that's one of the interesting things about being uh, in a, a, a city as small or a capital city as small as, as Laos, uh, Vientiane was back then. I believe the city when Shelly and I lived there was a city of about 130,000 people. Uh, you know, there's more people, way more people in my barangay in Metro Manila uh, than there were, were in the capital city of, of Laos. And so you had all these embassies there, and we got to know uh, people uh, within the, the U.S. Embassy, and I met a, a drug enforcement agent, a DEA agent, uh, who was there in Laos trying to get them to quit growing opium. Uh, Laos grows, or used to grow, huge amounts of opium. Uh, and they would, it, it was funny for me when I first went, or strange, because you would go to the market, and there would be, you know, your vegetable salesman, uh, you know, just a regular open-air market. You'd have vegetables, potatoes, tomatoes, onions, opium. <laughs> and there would be these huge, huge things of black tar, if you've ever seen opium on in sheets, you know, pure opium. And so it would be just boom, 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 opium. And it was just out. It was, it was illegal, but it was just... It was just there. It was allowed. Uh, and so whenever money started coming in from the United States and other places, and they started trying to get them to quit doing opium, uh, then they no longer did that. You couldn't just see opium in the market. Uh, what happened, the salesman then went in front of the post office. And so they would stand in front of the post office, and they would hold the opium in a cloth bag. So it was a little more hidden. Uh, and they quit growing opium. You know, the poppies, if you've ever seen a poppy field. Uh, they quit growing the poppy fields right next to the road. Uh, They started doing it on the other side, you know, behind the mountain, so it wasn't as easily seen. But but it was still there. Uh, But there was a people group in in Laos, the Hmong people, that primarily grew the opium, uh, because they lived in the mountainous region, and they grew a lot of opium. Uh, And there was a big discussion within his group was whether or not that was cultural. And for them, because they're not like us, I mean, they're looking at it from a very secular standpoint, if you're an extreme cultural relativist, and if you decide that uh, opium growth or opium use amongst the Hmong people is a cultural trait, then it becomes okay. Uh, but, you know, we know drug use is not okay. It's, it, it's not good for the Hmong people either. And so he asked me that. He's, he's, he knew I'd been there for a long time, and, he, and I worked in that area. And he said, is, is opium use a cultural trait for the Hmong? And they, they did. You know, they Hmong would smoke opium. You know, you go work all day. You're backwards from sleep at night. You smoke opium. Uh, people get old. They all smoke opium. You know, the elderly just kind of smoked opium until they died when they couldn't work anymore. And uh, you know, you would sleep a lot. So it's not. I mean, it's it, but it does certainly dehabilitate of a person that is of working age. And of course, parents were addicted to it. It was a, it was a terrible thing. Uh, the way when I don't mean to make light of it. I feel like I'm probably doing that. I shouldn't. Because uh, we had kids that we helped go to school were part of our street kid program. 
that they were in our program because their parents were addicted to opium. And so he, but he asked me, he said, is it a cultural trait? And I said, yes, I, I believe it is. I mean, it's, it's always, uh, it, it's been such part of their history. I think it is part of their culture, the, the way they use it. I said, but, I said, it, it's wrong. I said, I don't believe the culture is, is neutral. I said, and there are bad parts of culture. I said, this is a bad part. And he goes, wow, because I can't say that in the meetings I go to. I was like, well, I understand that. But we have to take a bit of this, not extreme cultural relativism, but we have to take our ethnocentrism that we come in with and become enough of a cultural relativist to realize that our culture is not superior to somebody else's. All culture is not superior. It's just uh, different. Uh, cultural relativism is a way of viewing the world that, uh, yeah, I'll just skip that part. But we have to recognize that the new culture that we go into is not better or worse than our own. It's just different. It's, it's just different. The, the way families relate to each other, the way husbands may relate to their wives, uh, the way the traffic is done, the foods they eat. It's not wrong. It's just different. And fortunately, sometimes we come in and we get the idea that it's wrong and we can somehow fix it. You know, we can somehow teach people how to drive better, how to obey the laws or stay within the lines, you know, and whatnot. And we'll try to fight to, to do that. And it, it's, it's a great frustration. And as I said, there are some things in the culture that we do need to fix, some things we do need to come up against. Uh, there are some places, uh, I think thinking of Africa, uh, where... Uh, talk about wife beating, of course that's a negative, but also incest is not unusual. Uh, within, it's a community accepted practice within some cultures. Uh, and uh, of course that's not, that's not right according to a biblical standard. So we bring a biblical standard in, or what we understand is a biblical standard, we try to apply it. So there's some things that we have to realize that are, uh, that do need to be changed. But much of the culture that we come in contact with and we and we'll, the change always has ramifications, and we'll talk about that. Uh, hopefully, we'll get there today. If not, we certainly will by tomorrow. Uh, but there are definitely changes when you bring in. There are ramifications for that. But we have to come to the to the realization that what we come in contact with, it's not wrong, but it's just different. It's just different. It's just not the way we do things. Uh, there are some that when they go into a new culture, they uh, recognize that it's not just different. But actually, everything is better. I don't know if you've ever met people like that. Uh, you know, when they go to, we had a guy in, in language school when I was in Thailand. And for him, it wasn't just that. He was an American guy. Uh, not just that, you know, the things in Thailand were different, the way things were done. They were just so much better. He just, he, he over, I don't think he overloved Thailand, but the way he dealt with it was, it was just so much better. Thai food was better than American food. Uh, you know, Thai houses were better than American houses. Uh, he even liked Thai toilets better than American toilets. You know, I remember him saying how much more, but they were way more efficient. And he was so, you know, and I was, the, he kind of just went that way. And I actually saw a picture one time. There's a guy, and I guess he still lives there. Uh, he lived with a tribal group in northern Thailand. And I saw his picture someplace. And uh, whatever, and, and he had come over, and he had, they used to call it, of course, native is kind of a, a negative term, but. We used to call it going native. You may read that sometimes in some old textbooks. When someone comes in and they become so much a part of their new culture, they leave their old culture behind. And they just completely get engulfed in it. And there was a guy that uh, had come in. He had blonde hair, oddly enough. He's light-skinned, blonde hair. Uh, American guy. Uh, that's, uh, I don't remember the tribal group. It was either maybe Corinne or, or 
or Mong or Yao, I don't remember the tribal group, but he, he felt called to a tribal group up in northern Thailand, and so he went and he lived amongst that, that tribal group, which is not unusual for a missionary, except that uh, he, all his clothes, uh, his house, uh, he married a, a local girl, uh, you know, and, and he lives 100% of his time in that village. I mean, he became part of that, that village. Uh, and, and he, in a sense, you know, left to his best of his ability, left his culture behind and adapted uh, this new culture. And honestly, that, that's fine if you're going to live there forever. I mean, there's not a negative for me. He loves the people. You know, there's, he's happy. People are happy. There's, there's nothing to that. It looks, you see a picture, and the only, I saw a picture of his family somebody had. And in, the only way you knew that he wasn't a tribal person was that he had blonde hair. <laughs> you know, it looked strange. You know, in the village, because you stand out. But it looked strange, uh, but he totally engulfed himself within that, that uh, community. And I don't even, I don't see that as a negative, really, unless he decides he wants to go back to the United States uh, or back to the America, or if he has to go back, uh, because our legal status is, many times, we're guests where we're at. Uh, when you're a missionary and you're living in another place in our world system today, uh, we're always guests. You know, I'm a guest, really, of the Philippine government. Uh, the Bureau of Immigration. I just got my two-year 9G visa and my I-card uh, just recently. And so, but I'm a guest of the Philippine government. Uh, if they so choose, they could make me non-welcome guest. Uh, I don't have a legal right to be here, really, other than their permission. Uh, so the Philippine government could, if I broke the law in some way or did something uh, that the government saw as not good for the country or, or whatever, uh, they could ask me to leave or force me to leave. Uh, and so we always are guests. It was the same when I was in Thailand, especially when I was in Laos. I mean, it was very, uh, I only got a visa every six months there. And of course, they could have always refused to give me one. They, they didn't, but they always had that right. And so we're always guests where we're at. And so there is that possibility, this guy, there's a possibility he'd like to leave Thailand. I guess unless he's given up his citizenship and somehow became a citizen of Thailand, that's possible too. Uh, but that's a whole different issue. Uh, but when we're entering another culture, what's our here? Entering another culture, people need to recognize their own ethnocentric tendencies. I'll get it out. It's early this morning. And become cultural relatives. We have to realize who we are. Uh, and that, uh, you know, for me, and all of us should be. I really think it's healthy. We should be proud of our culture and where we're from. You know, you should be comfortable in your own country and, and happy that the Lord chose to let you be born wherever it was. Wherever it was. Uh, you know, for me, it's the it's the southern part of the United States. I'm so glad I wasn't born in the northern part of the United States. You know, and I I joke with people from the north because their food's not as good as our food, and uh, of course they don't speak like we do either. They have a different accent. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm glad I had the upbringing that I did where I grew up. And I hope all of you do, too. I mean, I hope that you have that kind of a memory and uh, growing up in your country and your culture and, and are, I don't know, the Lord tells us not to be proud. But, you know, I say happy instead of proud. But happy uh, from, from where you're from. Uh, but you have to keep that and realize that you're, you feel that way about yourself, but so does everybody else. Uh, I can remember... I've heard missionaries who were very frustrated with a, a, a type that was in, back when I was in language school in Thailand. We were in language school together. They were very frustrated with this Thai pastor. And uh, he was a frustrating guy. You know, not everybody is, is perfect. And he was a frustrating guy. He had issues. 
but uh, one of the things I remember them saying was, uh, doesn't he know what I've given up to be here? Doesn't he know? And uh, that what I've given up to, you know, leaving, I think they were, from the, they were from the U.S., but where I left in the United States, all I've left behind to be here in Thailand. And I can remember even at the time thinking, well, no, not really. I mean, he doesn't really know and he doesn't really care. I mean, for him, you know, Thailand or northern Thailand where it was the greatest place on earth. That's, that's his home. You know, so he's at the center where he's at, and you are too. But you have to recognize that in yourself and those tendencies. And become enough of a cultural relativist to realize that the cultures that we come in contact with uh, are not wrong. Uh, they're just different. There's no way that you can read that from where you're at, so I'll read it to you. Uh, this is a uh, story, I believe it was in one of Meyer's books, but I wanted to read it. It's about cultural adjustment. And uh, I chose to read it because it's about missionaries here in the Philippines. And then the writing is, to give you the setting, uh, they're writing about a prayer meeting they're having as a team with their Filipino co-workers. And the Filipino co-workers are at this point praying for the missionaries uh, that are there working with them and living with them. And it goes this way. It says, Lord, Jojo began, we thank you so much for sending Ron and Linda to us. While the bamboo trees creaked like doors on rusty hinges, 19 Filipinos and three foreigners sat around a large open shed, praying. Tonight we are concentrating on one another's needs. For their careful Bible teaching, their beautiful personal lives, their warm home, their enthusiasm and energy in serving you. Ron and Linda and I were the only foreigners on the staff. And now, Lord, Jojo continued, we beg you to deliver them from tensions. I was a little surprised. Tension? In their capable, efficient ministry, well, yes, I suppose I had seen them tense. They, uh, when they were weak from hepatitis, tired from waiting around and uh, dead rats floating through the, fl the flooded market, charged full of adrenaline for a dozen meetings, crammed into the week ahead and then let down when people forgot to show up for the crucial planning session. Yes, maybe they could relax a little more. A gecko swiveled down from the roof beam. The prayers murmured on. Then I heard Arturo praying for me. And our father, I ask you to deliver her from tension. Tension again. What was this about? We were foreigners. Were we foreigners so much more tense than anybody, everybody else? As a matter of fact, yes, we liked efficiency. So sometimes we got tight about lagging schedules while the Filipinos adjusted calmly to the land where natural and political typhoons could demolish any system. As a result, peace characterized pagan Filipinos more than it did many of us missionaries. On the other hand, some cultures with little Christian heritage do, some, do seem out, outstanding in some areas. When I looked around at my Filipino neighbors, for example, I saw strong families, warm hospitality, lots of time lavished on children, enduring loyalties, the ability to live graciously on little money, a heritage of economic freedom for women, creativity in music, sauces that, that deliciously extended a little meat to many people, a delight in sharing, skill in the art of relaxation, lithe, limber bodies, the ability to enjoy being with a large number of people continuously. Uh, this is a missionary writing about, and, and you know the local people recognize their tensions, yeah, but it was news to them that they had tensions. Uh, but it's all part of the adaptation, and I pray that they would get over those tensions. 
um, as, as time goes on. I had a video there one time, but I don't remember which one. The, uh, another thing to, to, with culture shock that might surprise you a little bit is that, uh, well, let me ask, anybody want to share a culture shock story? Uh, living in another place, or uh, Christy, I know you were in Japan. It is different. The uh, and they're different than Thai toilets. Thai toilets, at least you can figure that out from the feet, <laughs> from where the feet things are. Uh, but yeah. Our toilet culture is different from Filipino toilet culture. Yeah. <laughs> we use the toilet paper, and Filipinos don't use the toilet paper. Mm-hmm. One time, uh, one of the co-workers came to my room and then asked to use the toilet. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, of course, he yeah, use it. And then mm-hmm. after he used the toilet, I went in and I saw some crumbles. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
told me, thanks for being here to God. He was really surprised. Out of fear, I opened the door and said, thank you to him. Did you look around for the police? Now, one thing you, you learn, Benjamin, here in the Philippines is that, and that's one of the things that's sort of funny, our pastor in uh, uh, Seward, Pastor Seward in, in Manila, was preaching one Sunday. He had just gone to Singapore, and he came back, and he was talking, and he was talking about having to walk to the bus stop in Singapore, and uh, in most cities are like that. You have designated bus stops. People have to walk there, but he laughed. He said, you know, he said, here in the Philippines, he said, everywhere's our bus stop. <laughs> I just wave, bust off wherever you wave, you know, and, and places like you, you can't do that, but here you just stop anywhere, TV stop wherever they want to, at Bex's, you don't have to be at a proper, you know, sign that says bus stop or TV stop, you can just anywhere, you know, and you'll, you'll discover the Philippines is very loose on that, and it, it really makes for traffic for sure, it doesn't help, <laughs> it doesn't help to move things along, uh, but yeah, that's a big difference. That's a big surprise. Okay, but you might be surprised to know, too, that there's a, such a thing as reverse culture shock. That when you've been in one culture for a number of years and you've adapted, and even though in your dream you're thinking, I just can't wait to get home, or, you know, just excited. <clears throat> when you get there, you'll be surprised to know that you also have reverse culture shock because you're not the same person anymore. And it can kind of go uh, both ways. I think the idea at times that you'll have that reverse culture shock uh, it might be a surprise, uh, you know, because you're excited to get home. Uh, you're going to see friends, uh, familiar food. At first, you know, people are excited that you come home. Uh, they want to hear your stories. Uh, I can remember our first time we went home on furlough. I think there was probably uh, 30 people at the airport to welcome us home. You know, I have a big family. Uh, I have a lot of cousins. And so they, I had a lot of people there to welcome us home and everything. Uh, and I think our second furlough, there might have been maybe six, seven people. And by the third, fourth time, and now it's just my mom and dad. <laughs> you know, it's gotten down that way. Well, when you first get home, people are excited that you're there. They want to hear your stories. They're excited about you being there. Uh, you're eating familiar food. Familiar food. Uh, and you, there's exciting. And, but for a while, you, you can find yourself that that excitement starts to subside. Uh, and we have to establish ourselves again in our home culture. Uh, and then when you do that, the people that you're around, the things in your culture, because of the changes that have taken place in you, won't seem quite right. Uh, if you've lived, if you've gone, and my, my experience is if you leave, uh, we, we live in the United States, and all of you know it's a very affluent country. I mean, people have cars, they have nice houses. Uh, we were raised, my family's in what we call middle class. Of a middle class in the United States is very high class. I mean, the standard of living that we have is very high compared to most of the rest of the world. And so when we went and lived in, in Thailand, especially when we were in Laos, uh, when we were in Laos, it was the poorest nation in Asia. Uh, I think the a average annual income for a family in Laos when I was there was 300 U.S. dollars for a year. Uh, everybody was were subsistence farmers. Uh, you know, they didn't generate a lot of money. Uh, and so in going back... Uh, going back to the United States, uh, things don't seem quite right because they're the injustice that is there. And that imbalance in economics in the world stage, is it's not right. You know, it's not right. You know, it's really not right that 
you know, one country seems to have so much and another doesn't. And so whenever you go back, if you've lived in a place like we did in Laos or you live in, a, in, a, in, a, in an area like that, in that type of situation, when you go back to your home country like I did in the United States, you can experience, and you do experience, reverse culture shock. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a normal thing. I can still remember uh, going to uh, the grocery store for the first time uh, when I went back after we'd been in Laos. And our grocery store in Laos, our largest store, wasn't quite as big as this one. Uh, it was, you know, it was uh, Udom Development was the name of the store. And it was probably not quite this big. And that was our largest market, uh, or what we call a grocery store, when I was in Vientiane, when we lived there in Laos. And now there's, a, there's bigger stores now. There's been a lot of development. But back then, that's the way it was. I remember going to the grocery store in the U.S., and, and it's like going to the grocery store in Manila. You know, it's, it's just food everywhere. It's just, you know, cheese, lots of cheese. You know, I remember just kind of being overwhelmed by it all. And that's going to happen, but what you have to do is to adapt to that and realize that the people in your home country, it's not really their fault uh, that they're, they live in that affluent lifestyle. They don't really know what's happening, what is happening around the world. And they're very ethnocentric. They don't necessarily understand where you've been. Uh, they may not understand where you're coming from. And so I would recommend just be, be gentle with them. Uh, I was... Uh, uh, at a, it was actually before I ever went to Thailand. I was in a mission service on a Wednesday night at a church where I had gone to when I was in seminary, so I knew the church family. And the pastor, I was speaking during their missions convention on a Wednesday night, my wife and I. And he said, and he, the pastor told me he wasn't going to be there. Uh, he had to be at another place uh, that Wednesday night, but he, he knew I was going to preach. And he said, we have a, a missionary that's from our church that just came home from Cambodia. He said he's only been home a few days. He said he's not going to preach tonight. He said, but I'd like him to greet the people and just tell the people hello. He said, but he'll only speak about five minutes, so don't worry, you'll still have plenty of time. I said, okay. And that, that was fine. And so this missionary came, and he'd been in Cambodia. And Cambodia in those days, and I think it's probably better now, uh, but in those days he was in there right after you know the UN came in, set up the government. Khmer Rouge had been pushed to the borders of Thailand. It was... Yeah, the Vietnamese had pulled out. They set up a government. It's desperately poor. And so he was actually, and he probably didn't know it, but he was in severe reverse culture shock coming back into the United States. And he got up that, that night, and before I spoke, they introduced him. He got up, and he just, uh, he got to talking, and he just started to uh, tear into and, and starting to uh, get on to and chastised the congregation uh, because of the cars they drove, the houses they lived in, the food they ate, the clothes they wore. And, uh, of course, the congregation, they're just, they're just Americans. I mean, they, they live like they do. That's all they've ever known. And he just really got on them, and it, he did it for more than 30 minutes. And I was sitting there thinking, oh, my goodness, I've got to preach to these people. And I know he's just going to make them mad. <laughs> they're going to be all angry by the time I get up there. Uh, but he really should not have spoken that Sunday. I pray that he got some uh, some focus uh, and got better. But there is actually, there's a recommendation in our mission, it used to be in our manual, that you don't preach within 30 days of you going home. And the reason for that is so that you can adjust back to the life of where you, where you come from. Uh, but reverse culture shock can happen. Uh, it's, it's very common. Uh, the things that 
you know, that used to be normal to you in your home culture won't seem normal anymore. And if you're not careful, you can get angry like, like that missionary was. He was very angry. And you want to tell everybody in, in your home country where they're wrong, you know, what they're doing wrong. And you want to tell them about how good things are, how the people live where you're at, and how it's better there. Uh, and so I would just caution you in doing that to, to recognize those feelings that are going to come. Uh, over the years, we have, uh, my wife and I have, have adapted. Of course, now we live in Metro Manila. And Metro Manila has, it's got, I don't know what it doesn't have. I mean, right now, they have I mean, big stores. I mean, we, it, it's, we live differently now. When we lived in Laos, I think the culture shock going home was more extreme. Uh, now it's not so much. Uh, and we've done it enough now. We've kind of got to have the balance in there. Uh, but you do feel that. And so be prepared that, you know, looking ahead, that after your first term, second term, uh, you can have that reverse culture shock. Uh, and you, some of the things in your own home country will irritate you just like uh, just like in going to, to your new country. Uh, let's see. Let's talk about learning to adapt to new cultures. Uh, so we talked about culture shock is real, but it's really, it's, it's never uh, terminal. Uh, you'll eventually find the food that you like. You'll learn how to ride the bus. You'll learn how to speak the language uh, well enough to be conversational. Uh, you'll make friends. Uh, you'll not only uh, survive in your new culture, but you'll learn to like it. You'll learn things that you like, food that you like. Uh, you learn how to get around, uh, and you'll be able to get through through these things. You'll recognize your, uh, and part of doing that is you need to recognize your own anxieties. Uh, fear of new situations will always bring on anxiety, and I know that I saw some things down here. You're going to talk about stress and things in missionary life, and so I won't talk too much about that. Uh, but know that the fears are there, and many times those fears are are not. Are not founded, and I, I mentioned to you yesterday about my fear of speaking when I was first in Thailand because I didn't want people to laugh at me. Uh, because in, in my culture, where I'm from, being laughed at is very negative, and you know, nobody likes that. Uh, and so, but Thai people would laugh to try to make me feel better, and in essence, while they're laughing, I'm feeling worse. And so, you know, it's just this terrible cycle. Uh, but once you understand that, uh, you can do it. Uh, but learning the new culture. Uh, it can be terrifying, but it can also be an exciting experience. It really depends on what we bring to the situation. Uh, if we're afraid of the unknown and withdrawn in that enclave I talked about yesterday, uh, we, will not, we will not adapt. You have to engage. You, know, you have to look at things as fun. Uh, you know, be all you can to, to, to muster. Get the courage up to adapt to that uh, new culture. Uh, learn as much as you can about the culture. Read books that you can find. Uh, about the country. Read about your country's history. You know, read about as, as much as you can. Read the history. Uh, find history books. If there's not any available, talk to people. Uh, find out about what happened. And I'm very surprised. I've, I've been very surprised over the years when I meet missionaries that do not know the history of the nation where they work. Uh, I just can't quite fathom how they do that. Uh, I'll give you an example. We were going to sign a contract with the medical university and there was a missionary that uh, was with us and going into it and they had been in, in Laos for a number of years and, uh, before we had gotten there and we're walking in and, and, and probably all of you know or if you know the history of Indochina or, or Southeast Asia, uh, Laos used to be a colony of France 
you know, Cambodia, uh, Vietnam, and Laos were all part of what France called Indochina. And so there are remnants of that French uh, period still around in Laos. And now in reality, the French didn't do much in Laos. They built a few houses, uh, but they didn't put any roads. They left the ability to make bread. And I tell people that's the only thing of value that the French people did in their time in Laos was imparting French bread. Uh, but in Laos, we call it Lao bread. Do you have in Vietnam? Do you have also the like the baguette, baguettes, the bread? Yeah, that's that's the only thing really they left behind. I think of value. But they had these big old houses uh, that were colonial style houses uh, where the French people lived when they were there. And one of those houses in the middle of the city, and they're really they look distinct. If you've ever seen a French colonial Southeast Asian house, got the big wood shutters, high ceilings. Really, they're they're nice looking houses. Uh, there's one I think it's the Kualao. It's the name of the restaurant. Uh, the Kualao is a, a restaurant that has, they have remodeled one of those old houses and have made a restaurant out of it. And it's a really nice Lao restaurant, nice, good food, not, not very expensive, and just a beautiful restaurant. So we were walking in with the missionary, and I said something about it being a French house, you know, French colonial house that's been remodeled. And I was very surprised. She looked at me and she said, the French used to be here? And I thought, how do you not? I mean, everybody over the age of 50 at the time I was there could speak French because they had gone to French school. Uh, you know, the French, their whole education system was French uh, until, uh, you know, the 1950s. And so anyone that was a child, you know, in the 50s and early 60s, and especially the educated class, they could all speak French. And a lot of them, and I found that many of the communist officials actually had gone to uh, university in Paris. Uh, and actually... It's sort of funny to think about, but that's where they really became good communists, you know, the University of Paris, because the uh, Parisian universities were very left, very far left at that time, probably still are. Uh, but they had gone there and become part of the Communist Party, but I just couldn't get over the fact that they didn't know that, uh, because it seems like it's everywhere. I mean, the signs are in French. They actually claim to be part, they know not very many people speak French other than older people. They're part of the, what are they called, the Association of... Uh, French-speaking nations, lingua franca, something like that. Uh, Laos is still a part of that. Uh, and I, I just couldn't quite fathom that. So, so know the history of your nation. Uh, know uh, what took place. Read about it. Uh, I love to read about the history of Thailand, Laos, now the Philippines. You know, beautiful histories. And if you can read the history, it will help you understand the people. Uh, because what they've been through generationally has such a large effect on who they are and how they see the world. And it'll help you to adapt and, and getting to know them. Uh, let's see. Now let's talk about, uh, and part of the adapting will be building trust. Uh, it's not enough for us to just learn our new culture and appreciate its ways, but we still can remain, we can do that, but still remain outsiders in the society. Uh, Mayers has this great part in his uh, book, I'll try it a minute to, don't remember the name of it, the title, but anyway, he has this great series in there talking about building trust and how to build trust with the people that you come to work with. Uh, but Myers points out the most important step in entering a new culture is to build trust. Uh, only when people build trust with, between them and the people they've had minister with will people listen to what they have to say. Uh, but trust has to do with the value that we place upon relationships. Although it's something seldom that we actually stop 
and consider. But building relationships is one of the, the biggest, is the most important thing we can do as missionaries. It's, it's really what you accomplish uh, in your relationships and what you do in building relationships with people will accomplish way more than anything you'll ever do on a Sunday morning. Uh, but the building relationships that you make with your neighbors, uh, with your people, and I'm assuming that that all of us will end up, or you'll end up in countries and places where the Christian witness is very small. And so you have to figure out, or, or figure out as you go there, uh, that when you go to a place like Thailand or Laos, when you have a place that's small, people don't typically wander into your churches. Uh, they might, the guy can bring them in. But by and large, people just don't wander into your church. You have to make those relations and connections outside that church building. Church building is a great place for discipleship, great place for uh, preaching, great place for fellowship. I, I believe heavily in the local church. But the, in, but the evangelism and the touch that you are going to do is going to be with outside people. And to do that, you have to build trust. And you also have to figure out how to build trust. The way you do that within a society. Uh, within our own culture, we already know what how to do that. Uh, we know what it is to, how to build relationships. We know it naturally because that's how we've, we've grown up in it. Uh, we know what the cultural cues are that help us to evaluate relationships with each other. Uh, they, with these relationships that we have, they include things like titles and roles. Uh, we normally expect to trust people that are ministers or preachers. You know, if someone is a minister, then normally you would, would trust them. If someone is a judge, uh, of course this depends on the legal system from country to country, but typically if someone is a judge or someone who works in the court system, uh, when they have that title, we give them trust. In the social context, we expect the uh, cashier when we pay our money to give us a proper change back. And in social uh, standing, we actually expect someone, uh, I, I should have looked for some pictures to give you an idea of who you would trust more, uh, but someone in a, a coat and tie that's dressed well or dressed properly within a culture, uh, we tend to automatically uh, would, would give them trust more than we would somebody who is dressed like a street person or a vagrant uh, or a, uh, <laughs> a hip-hop artist or something like that. Uh, because they're, those are cultural cues. Uh, not too many years ago, I remember watching watching the news, and there was a, a story that came on of a guy that uh, defrauded people, that stole money. And he had gotten these people to invest in these fake businesses and stole their money. And I found it interesting that this was in the state of Alabama. Uh, when the people were interviewed, the people that had lost their money, had given their money to this guy, uh, they... When they said, uh, the first thing they said, they said, well, you know, when he came down, he was dressed so nice. He was dressed nice, and he spoke well, and we trusted him. He, he gained our trust because he, when he showed up, he looked like a businessman. He had a nice car. He had a private airplane. Uh, he had all those things that were cues in our culture that give somebody trust. And so then they were deceived because of that. Uh, now, the cues that in our, your own culture, you know what those are, but the new culture... You don't know what they are. But in a new culture, we don't know what the cues are, and they, and we need to figure out what they are so that we can build that trust. Uh, we can find it hard to know uh, when getting in those relationships who we can trust and how to trust them. 
Uh, we don't know how to convince people. Uh, we don't really know the cues going in, what makes a person trustworthy, and we don't really know going in how to present ourselves so that we'll be trusted and that we can build a trust. Uh, some cultures are a lower trust than others. Uh, the Philippines, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative sense, but the Philippines is what I would call culturally the lowest, it's the lowest trust country I've ever lived in. And let me give you some examples. Uh, there's a guy named Francis Fukuyama who wrote a book called Trust, the Social Virtues of the Creation of Prosperity. It's a secular book, but he tries to relate the way trust works in a society and in business with economic development. And I was reading it, and as I did, it, it, it occurred to me things that are built into the Filipino, uh, the way Filipinos do business and, and discourse that, that makes it low trust. Uh, when you buy Dairy Queen in Manila, you go to Dairy Queen and you pay at one register. You, y'all done this before, I guess. But you pay, uh, you order your ice cream, they three or four things, and they'll make it in the back. You pay and they give you your receipt. And whenever you wait and they call your name, they don't just call out and give you your blizzard or whatever, your cold. They see the receipt. And they'll look at the receipt, or Starbucks does the same thing typically. Uh, They'll look at the receipt and they'll make sure that all the things on the receipt are in front of you. Then they'll stay at the receipt that you received it and you walk away. Now, that's the only place I've ever lived where Dairy Queen does that. Uh, Dairy Queen in, in Thailand, Dairy Queen in the United States, they make it in the back and they call it out. You know, got a chocolate chip blizzard or whatever, and they, they hand it over, and you take it. Uh, but in here, they make sure, and I, I'm thinking the reason for that is so you can't come back with your receipt and say, hey, I didn't get my blizzard. You know, so it, it's, it's built into that system. And uh, a lot of times, whenever you pay your bill at restaurants in the Philippines, they always say, whoever received it, they'll repeat the, the amount of the money. They'll see, though, if the bill is 400 pesos, and you pay with the 500 the person will pick it up and they'll repeat it to you. Sir, I have received 500 pesos. Uh, and that's just part of the culture. And then you do it naturally. It's not something that, that you think, you know, I, I don't really trust, you know, afraid this guy's going to say he gave me 1,000. You know, but they'll repeat it. And then you say, yes, that's right. And then they'll go and they bring you back to change. It's all built into the culture. And I don't mean that in a negative light. It's just what I've noticed. And it's, it's all part, this is what I would be characterized as a low-trust culture one with the other. Uh, and so you have to find cues within the Filipino culture. How do you build trust with your neighbors? You know, you, you Filipinos that are here, you know already because you grew up here. But as an American coming in, I would have to figure out what that is. You know, what are the cues? And I had to figure out in Thailand how to do that. Uh, but the trust, that, the trust building begins with an interest and in acceptance of those among who uh, we serve. Uh, when we build trust and we're coming in, uh, there are times when those relationships uh, may start one way, uh, but develop into something else. Uh, we have our reasons for coming to want to minister in a new place, and the people that we connect with may have reasons why they want to connect with us. And at times, it may be money-based. Uh, my landlord in, in Laos, Mr. Sofabi, when our relationship uh, started, uh, and I, I rented from him the whole time that I was there, nine years. Uh, we rented uh, two properties from Mr. Sophie, an office property and a house. And over the years, when it first started, uh, he would invite us to dinner. And it was always, in the beginning, it was a financial relationship. 
Uh, he would invite me to dinner with his family. Uh, when I first arrived, he did that. Uh, and it was an interesting time for me when I, I, as we sat down at the dinner table and, uh, and it was very nice. His wife was there, his kids were there and he invited all of the assemblies who got missionaries that were there at the time. And the time was only three of us. And so it was just three of us sitting there with Mr. Sophie and his family as we sat down. And one of the things I did know about Southeast Asia is that nobody eats. Uh, you know, with us, we pray and then we eat. Uh, but in a Buddhist table, or and Miss Sophie was, was a Buddhist, uh, you you know, people don't, they don't pray for the eat. And he was paying, and, and I always used the standard, if I was paying, I prayed. If I was paying, I prayed. And so uh, if it was my meal, and I was the host, I would always pray. And I would explain, we're Christians, we always give thanks to God for the food before we eat. So if it's okay, you know, I don't mean to be offensive, but I want to pray uh, for the food. And I would do that at government meetings, I would do it wherever if I was paying. Uh, if I was the host of the meeting, I would take that, that role. And people seemed okay with that. Uh, but in this setting, of course, you know, the food comes. And I knew that nobody eats until the person of the highest social status eats. You know, whoever it is. You know, and I'm sitting there. And the food is there. We're just sitting and waiting. And I'm waiting. And I'm waiting for the person of the highest status. I wasn't real sure who it was. Uh, to start eating. And so I was sitting there. And a minute, Ben McClure, our, our missionary, uh, that I was sitting actually leaned over and he goes, you need to start eating. And I thought, oh, wow. Because I came in as the country coordinator or moderator, and I was Mr. Sophie's guest, even though he was way wealthier than I was. But I was his guest, so I needed to eat first. And so then I started eating. But our relationship started out very business-oriented. I mean, he showed an interest in me and the family, but you know, anytime he showed a great interest in those first few years, it was right before we were going to negotiate a contract for property. And, you know, and he would come in and spend time with me and and he would come in, and he would do what's normal. He would come in and tell me how terrible the, his other businesses were. You know, his kids need to go to college. Just not sure how he's going to get by. And, you know, and, and he would just go. And, and at times when it was uh, really tense, one time I, I just, I was willing to move because the market had changed so much. You know, we had rented at this high price, but there were so many more properties now. And, and this average price had gone down, and so I wanted to bring our rent down and, you know, he brought his wife in, and she cried for a while. But, but I knew it was a, it was kind of a game we were playing. You know, she came in, and she cried. You know, how terrible it was. And uh, so, but still, I said, well, I, miss I really just can't. You know, it's just not. Uh, we have to go with the market. And so we eventually came up with a, with a number and, and whatnot. But we did that for years. Uh, and our relationship was, was based that way. But over that time, he and I uh, built up a trust with each other. And in time, actually, when he would come by or we would spend time together, I got to know about his family. Uh, he would come in, I had an opportunity to talk to him about the Lord. He didn't become a Christian while I was there. Uh, but I, I, he'd come in, and I would pray with him about his kids. He had a, a son that made terrible choices, got into drugs and all kinds of problems. And, and he would come in, and, I, and, and he would tell, we'd talk about it, and I'd pray with him. And so what started out in a, a relationship based on finance and money, it grew into something different. And it took a while, but we built trust with each other in the way we're going. And you need to find uh, what those are uh, when you're going. But as we do that, uh, <clears throat> as these are, are, are fulfilled, you know, they'll have, we'll have reason to continue that relationship. Our interest, but as we do that, our interest in others has to be genuine. You have to really care about them. And building trust. You can't just care about the numbers of your of your newsletter. 
You know, it goes way beyond that. Uh, we, we're, not, we're not corporate Christians, in a sense. We're not out there just to build up numbers for our church or, or build up numbers so that we can have something to send home. But to build trust, we have to uh, be genuine. If you're not genuine, people will figure that out. And they'll know that. You know, if you're not genuine in your relationship, uh, they'll, they'll realize that. And, and if you're not careful, they can actually feel uh, a form of manipulation or that they've been used somehow to just be part of, of that, uh, to just be part of, the, of your newsletter. But true interest can be expressed in many ways. Uh, it's seen as a, a true desire to learn about the people in their lives and their culture. Uh, you can really take the time to sit and drink tea. If it's a tea-drinking society, I mean, a lot of Asia, you know, there, there's that time where you can sit and, and sit for a long time and talk and drink tea and, and take the time to get to know people. Uh, sometimes we can get so wrapped up with our programs, the things that we want to do, that we'll lose sight of, of building those relationships and trust through just spending time. Appreciate the people. Get to know about their families and, and really care about them and, and who they are. Express your willingness to uh, to be part of the culture. You know, wear their type of clothes. You know, wear their clothing if you can. You know, if it's possible, dress like like they dress. Uh, you know, it's in most in most of Asia now, it's, it's not that it's not hard to do. I mean, you can dress like they do, uh, dress appropriately. You know, if you go someplace and and for the United States right now, short pants are typically okay. Not, I'm a, I'm, I'm an old soul, I guess. I I, I have a trouble singing in church, uh, but I, I'm I'm from Florida. It's a hot place. I'm starting to see it even in church, and it bothers me a great deal, but that's because of who I am, how I was raised, because I know my mom would have, would have killed me if she ever, you know, even thought that. Uh, you know, but, but dress properly. If your culture wears, uh, always wears long pants when they're working, wear long pants. Uh, you know, and, and at the time when I was in, in Thailand, even in the churches, you wouldn't wear denim. Uh, you know, uh, blue jeans to church. Uh, Thai pastors just didn't do it. And so I tried to dress like a Thai pastor dress. Because I wanted to look uh, proper where I went and be accepted for that. Uh, I didn't feel like I needed to bring in my American dress code. Uh, and I actually, it was a young pastor I was helping up in Nong Kai. And I will get to, you'll see him on the video, I think we'll get there today. Uh, but uh, this pastor in Nong Kai, uh, he had a team from Australia come up. And I don't mean to be, we don't have any, we have somewhat of an Australian connection, but you're not straight, so I'll tell the story. Uh, they, uh, the team came in, and uh, he told me, he goes, oh, John. And I saw him, they, they come that week, and I came to song on Sunday. He goes, oh, John, he goes, that team that came, he goes, oh, he said, the women, he said, they dressed so improper. He said, they, they wore, like, you know, thin straps on their, their shoulders, and he said, and they wore shorts. He said, oh, it's just terrible. He said, we were, like, trying to do outreach, and they wanted to go hand out tracks. And he goes, it was just awful. You know, he was telling me all this. And he's young. Uh, he was younger than me, and we were both probably in our 20s at that time. And uh, these were older, older than him. And so you got the age thing. You got foreigners coming in. They're your guests. And I told him, I said, John, you've got to correct them next time. You, know, you have to tell them. Uh, you know, you can't dress like that. It's good to tell people before they come if you have a short-term team. Give them a dress code. And then if they come and ignore your dress code, then they're being rebellious. And then you have a platform to say, you know, you're going to stay at the hotel today. I don't know, whatever you need to do. You know, you're not going to go hand out tracks looking like that. 
you can do that. And so it was nice after we had that conversation. And then some months later, we were doing a, uh, uh, a, a crusade, an outdoor meeting where we were inviting people to come to show the Jesus film and stuff. And one of the people that was going to sing that night, who actually knew better, they were tired, uh, showing up and they wanted to dress like a, I guess like a, a pop star or something. They had a short skirt. And uh, he told her to go change. And I thought, ah, that's cool. Because he has a standard, you know, he had a standard in the community that he had to keep. And he made her go put on a long skirt. And uh, I thought that was really good. Because uh, you do have those kind of standards for what's proper. So dress like the people as best you can. Uh, show that your hospitality. Invite people into your homes. Uh, let them play with, with your children. Uh, you know, Shelly, that's one of the things my, my wife uh, has always done where we've been. She likes having people, hospitality is one of the things that the gift she has, I suppose. She likes having people in her, in her home. And we would have, you know, tight church over. We would have the youth over. Uh, you know, we always had uh, people in our house. And, and there was some question. Our first house was quite small, two bedroom, just our two kids. We were going to move back, but we didn't make it there. We ended up going to Laos. We were going to move. Uh, to a bigger house, and our landlord that we had 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 this real big house, and uh, she uh, uh, she offered it to us at a really good rent, big yard. You know, I was thinking all the stuff we could do with it, you know, having church over and stuff like that. Uh, but I was hesitant because it was such a big property. And I remember I talked to our Thai pastor, and, and, and you always have people in the local your local context that you can trust. So I asked him. I said, Pastor, I said, what do you think about that house? You know, should I? Should we rent the house that, that's, that looks like that? That's that big. And he said, well, he said, I don't think any of us care what kind of house you live in. He said, what we care about is whether we're welcome. You know, are we welcome in your house? And that was the biggest thing. You know, not really how we lived or where we lived, but do we welcome people in our house? And welcome people in your house. Uh, build trust. Show that kind of an interest. If there's uh, formal rituals, uh, you know, people that were having weddings, uh, funerals. Uh, how they exchange gifts. Figure out how to do that and participate. Uh, when I first went to Laos, David. Could I just say amen to all that you're saying? I mean, Debbie and I have always tried to uh, dress like these are the national pastors dressing, you know, and things like this. Yeah. And this has never been an issue. When we have visitors come, we were always uh, up front and saying, um, you know, this is what's appropriate for it. And sometimes they would write and ask. You know, they wanted to know. They wanted to be. It was just never a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and but clear communication beforehand uh, is really helpful. And, and so, and I also concur with you on um, uh, the house and the things like this. I think you're you're probably thinking like we were. Well, you know, we obviously have a higher economic standard than the people we live with. We just want that stuff to be a barrier. Yeah. And and so, uh, you know, so think of a house. You may have a house in a car. Uh, but what we're trying to do is make sure we're always open to people. Mm-hmm. You know, if people needed a ride and we were going that direction, we took them along if we had room. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if people came over, we welcomed them into our home. And uh, uh, we had to tie up the dog because they were scared of a couple of But uh, they quickly learned he wasn't too much of a problem. So uh, we're hardly bring them up. Yeah, I just want to get, get a, a point um, that. Um, that we need to be sensitive to these issues. Um, and, but if you're sensitive and, and if you're loving to people, they'll pick up on that. So. Yeah, and they can feel the genuineness. 
and, and learn what how to like, I think one of the best things that I did early on when I went to Laos, I was working with the Ministry of Education. And Mr. Uh, a fellow named Mr. Uh, Kampat was my connection with the Ministry of Education. And he he had a, uh, his wife had a baby, I found out about it. I've been there just a few months. I found out his wife had a baby. Now, in my culture, whenever someone is expecting a baby, uh, you have what we call a baby shower. And you give gifts before the baby comes. You know, usually something to help take care of a baby. Baby clothes, powder, lotion, soap, whatever. Uh, but in uh, Laos and Thailand was the same way. Uh, you don't give anything before the baby's born, but after the baby's born. And so I learned that the baby had been born, that it was doing well, it was at his house. And so I lined it up uh, to go by uh, with our some of our Lao workers, and we took this big basket of, like, kid stuff. Uh, soap, lotion, you know, whatever, to take care of baby, baby stuff. And we went by, not only been there a short time, but we went by and just, you know, blessed him and, and, uh, and gave it to him on that time. And it, it did an amazing thing. You know, just doing that uh, helped he and I to build a good relationship. And for the nine years I was in Laos, I always considered him a friend. And there were different times when he would help us. There were times when I, uh, we helped him. Even uh, one time that I knew that it happened, uh, teachers, the Ministry of Education, they went, I think, six months one time without being paid, uh, zero salary. And uh, and I had known that was taking place because it was a talk about the, the government wasn't paying its employees. Uh, although it's a little different when you're in a, a communist-controlled country like that. People don't protest. You, know, you, don't, you don't pay teachers here in the Philippines for five months. They're going to protest. You know, they're going to let it be known. And uh, in my country, that would happen too. But in a controlled place like that, it just doesn't happen. But I knew that it was going on. And it was the only time he ever did it. He sent word uh, through friends, not direct, but through friends that, you know, they were out of food. And so we were able to send them some, and the only time in nine years it happened. And so I, I didn't feel like it was any kind of, it wasn't connected with getting a contract signed. It wasn't a bribe. But I knew that his family was out of food or had run out of food and they were out of they were in their end. And so we sent them some some uh, some money uh, so they could get food. Uh, but those kind of relationships only build over time. I participate in those times. We had another government official, uh, Mr. Compet, uh, who was with the Department of Foreign Affairs. And he was a terrible guy. Uh, he, he was just a, he was a sinful, sinful, not a nice guy. Uh, but he was the guy I had to work with. And he was awful. I hated to travel with him. You know, if I ever had to take a trip and he was on it, it was just, it was, I, I just, I would dread it uh, before the trip because he was so rude and would talk rude. And he wasn't speaking loud, but he would speak loud. And he would, you know, and, and one thing you notice in America, even sinful people in America, when they know you're a Christian or know that you're a minister, they don't tell you off color jokes or dirty jokes. Uh, but that turkey, he would tell me dirty jokes. You know, and I, it was just, just, Great me. I hated to travel with the guy. And he was always a big problem getting contracts signed. Uh, he would he would just give us so many trouble, so much trouble, not just us, but other Christian organizations. He was just the biggest pain uh, to deal with. I was on furlough at the time, but unfortunately his, his wife got sick and uh, and she passed away. And his wife died. And so uh, knowing that that took place and knowing what, what we should do, even though it wasn't, a, you didn't have to do it, but we knew it was the right thing to do. Our, our missionaries that were there, Eric DeFore and his family, along with our, our other Christian workers, they went to the funeral. 
It was a Buddhist funeral, you know, it was a um, cremation. Uh, but they went to the Buddhist funeral and were there with him. And, and you always take a, uh, you take money to funerals and weddings. Uh, and it helps the family defray the cost because they have the responsibility to give food to, to feed everybody that comes. And so everyone that comes brings an envelope with money in it. And so we had done that. We took an envelope of money, which was the, a, a right amount uh, to it. But it was amazing to me that and how he changed. After we did that and participated, it made a such difference to him that he became a completely different person. Uh, he actually became pleasant, which I was shocked. You know, he became a nice guy. It helped us get contracts signed and was very open and helpful. And and uh, and got to where I didn't dread being around him. Uh, he didn't become a Christian or anything, but uh, at that point, but I, I think it was, it was definitely had something to do with us going and showing genuine concern for his family. And I think he knew that he treated us terribly. Because uh, even in, in loud culture, he treated us bad. I mean, loud people don't treat people the way he treated us. They just don't. He was rude. Uh, and he knew that he had done that. But in spite of that, that we would gen- do something uh, like that to show him that we cared. Uh, and that we were genuine in our caring about him in this time of need. It made a big impact on his, on his life. And it built trust. You're going to run into people like that. Uh, but just take those opportunities that come up. Uh, learn what's done at weddings. And I've learned, and we, Christy and I talked about it yesterday too, I've learned now what time to go to a Filipino wedding. <laughs> you know, you don't go with the advertised time. You go way after that, you'll be there in plenty of time. Uh, but, you know, learn learn the ways and learn what gifts are to be given. Uh, you'll need informants to tell you, uh, you know, how to go, when to go, uh, the right amount to give. Uh, because a lot of these events, when you go as a guest, you take a gift. Uh, and you need to know what kind of gift to get, you know, so you have to do your research and you have to know how much should you get. And I, I've been blessed over the years with good informants, uh, good people that were in Laos that could tell me, you know, you need to get 200,000 geep or you need to get 300,000 geep. And, uh, geep is not, it's a big number, but there's not a lot of money there. Uh, like 200,000 geep was like $20, uh, you know, so or less than 20 U.S. dollars. And so you, you deal with, with big numbers, but not much money. Um, but the, let's see, acceptance begins uh, when we love the people as they are. Uh, we love the people as they are, not as we hope to make them. You have to love them as they are and not try to change who they are. It, it may be hard to do because we come in uh, wanting to uh, bring change. Uh, we're bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're definitely going to bring change in uh, to the community and, and to the place. But we have to love the people as they are and be very genuine in, in what we're doing. Uh, we don't uh, cut them off when they're talking. Uh, we don't laugh at their remarks. We don't compare our culture to their culture in a negative light. Uh, when we do that, it's a form of, of rejecting them. Uh, we don't uh, avoid them. Uh, we do our best to remember names. Uh, and we do our best to, uh, you know, trust them even with, with money. I mean, you, you do that in a culturally appropriate way, uh, but there'll be times where you have to trust someone to handle money, uh, to pay bills or to do other things. Uh, and so just find ways to accept them as they are. Uh, trust requires an openness, uh, building requires an openness on our part. Uh, before we ask people to trust us, we must first learn to uh, trust them. Uh, we must allow them to see who we are. 
Uh, let them be part of, of, of your struggles as well. When you have a, a physical issue, a family need, you know, be, be real. We all have those issues. You know, there, there's, there's issues that we'll have in sicknesses. There's issues we'll have in our families. Perhaps issues with our kids. You know, be open with, with the people you're ministering to and with. Let them pray for you. you know, ask them to pray for you. Be, be real in a sense. Uh, don't try to put off that you're super missionary and you never have any problems or never issues uh, because they'll see right through that because we all do. Uh, but be open with that and let them be a part of that, uh, that issue. Uh, let's see. Trust um, must be nurtured to maturity. In the beginning, relationships are fragile and they can easily be broken. Uh, you know, in the beginning, listen to a person. Uh, let them tell their stories. Uh, be a good listener. Allow them to tell you. Uh, you know, don't. If you're in a situation where, uh, you know, they're they're telling you things that you know really aren't quite right, uh, you know, still let them tell the story. It's a real story to them. Uh, there was a, a tribal group in uh, in Laos that their creation story involved a turtle somehow turtle and eggs or something, and somehow the world was created through this turtle. Uh, and, you know, and when, and when you hear that, you know, that's real to them. Even though, you know, we believe, we know that God spoke the world into existence, that's a real story to them. It wouldn't be good to laugh at their turtle story. You know, the first time you hear it, or make fun of it. You know, but let them they'll tell. Uh, make sure that, that as you do that, you read. I wanted us to read a, a case study. Let y'all pass these along. I think I have enough for everybody. If not, if husbands and wives can share one. I'm not sure how many I have there. And actually, I need one. Is there an extra one? I'll give this one back to you when I'm done. Oh, okay. Perfect. Thank you. Just I'll give it back to you later. Uh, this is on pig food and missions. It's a, it's a case that came out of Northern Thailand. Uh, you can tell that I scanned this out of the book. I'm not a very good scanner. Because <laughs> this should be the same size. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's more important. It's just a continuation of the story. It was on another page. As I scanned it, I couldn't get it small. Uh, so was, I'm not very tech-oriented, but I was just happy I got it on the page. Uh, but let's read this, Pick Food and Missions. It says, uh, my wife and I were asked to work at a small Bible school where several ethnic groups were represented in the student body. There were Thai, Northern Thai, Lao, Mio, and Yao, all manifesting distinct subcultures and valid value systems. Uh, my wife is a nurse, and I was involved in Bible teaching and practical Christian work with the students. From the start, we made it our purpose to accept each student just as he or she was. There were six Mao families living on the Bible school premises because they had been forced out of their mountain home by communist infiltration. One of these families consisted of Mark and his wife, Chow, and their two children, probably Cho, Cho and their two children. Uh, Mark was quiet, meek, and small of stature, but he was strong in faith and a good student. It was delightful to know him and to learn of his home in the hills, his background, his family, and his burdens and desires for the future. All of the Mao families were 
raising pigs to supplement their meager resources and provide a limited means of support. The men took turns gathering a green underwater plant for pig food from the nearby lake. One morning, I volunteered to go with Mark in a long dugout canoe to gather this pig food. We enjoyed good fellowship together. And as I pulled in the slimy green pig food, uh, we talked about meow ways, especially about meow courting and marriage procedures. My wife had been helping the Mao families medically for some months, and she had grown to appreciate these industrious and resourceful mountain people. One day, Mark came to visit at our house. As we sat on our front porch overlooking the lake, Mark said to my wife, uh, Cho will soon give birth to, or Cho will soon give birth to our child. It is the Mao custom to have the mother of the husband deliver the child. My mother is not here. She is still in the hills. Will you please take the place of my mother in the delivery of our child? We consider this a great honor. There was a local government hospital nearby, and my wife had encouraged the Mao women to have their babies there. This was new to them, and they did not trust the Thai way anyway. They could have asked one of the Mao wives to assist, but they requested that my wife fulfill the role of mother-in-law midwife on this important occasion. Although my wife is not a trained midwife, she is, she is a qualified registered nurse. She has assisted with deliveries in the past, but always with a doctor present. When the day arrived, she accepted her new role with a bit of trepidation and a prayer to the Lord for his help. All went well, and Cho gave birth to a lovely baby daughter. Mark, of course, was delighted, and our bond of friendship with the family was greatly deepened. As a result, our ministry of teaching the Word of God became more meaningful to Mark and to the other Mao students. What some of the key things that this missionary did? He's in a setting in northern Thailand. What are some of the key things that he did in the story that we can pick up on that helped him build trust? What was one of the first things that he mentions in his story that he does? Yeah, well, he went out with him to get the pig food. Uh, but that, that's a big thing. And he volunteered to go help him uh, get the big food and to participate in something that was important to this student. Uh, I, I imagine, I've never gathered uh, river weed or slime, but I, I can imagine it's not easy work. It was probably hard work, but he volunteered to go with him. What's something else that they did? The missionary. Uh, just to know more about the culture and the aspect. He has an interest. And he's got an interest in their ways and the different people groups. And he even highlights that while we were getting the pig food, you know, I asked him about uh, their the way they get married and their courtship. And I believe the Mount people that he's talking about are the Hmong people, and they have a very interesting courtship. And so, yeah, it would be quite a story uh, of how they find their wives or how they get their wives. Uh, but uh, what's some other things? Something that's significant also in relation to the house. That's right. Showing them, showing them love and helping them medically. And I think it's also significant that the student felt welcome to come to his house. Unannounced. You know, unannounced, he, he, he just comes in and visits on the front porch. Uh, and so the reason why I wanted to read this story, I thought it was a great representation of a guy coming in and these what seemed to be very small things. You know, showing an interest in the people where he's at, going and gathering pig food, having conversations about their how they get married, 
the marriage rights. And it is interesting because they do bride kidnapping, uh, this people group, uh, where they'll actually kidnap their wife. Uh, and it can be bad if the wife doesn't, the girl doesn't want to be kidnapped. Uh, so, you know, there's a whole other issues and clan fights that take place uh, because of these things. So it's fairly fascinating how they figure out if a girl actually wants to be kidnapped. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it can be very complicated because we had some we had some churches in that people group, and there were some challenges in that area. Uh, but you know, but he, he found these things, and they, his wife is there. Uh, they appreciate the people for who they are, but all those things come in very subtly. And then, as as he said, you know, they asked his uh, this family asked his wife to help in the birth of the baby. They won't go to the hospital. And uh, because typically, uh, hill tribe people in Thailand do not trust Thai people, uh, the hill tribe tribes. And they've got good reason. You know, they, uh, they, they've been treated bad by the Thai government because the Thai government won't give them citizenship. And if you're not a citizen, you, you can't buy land. Your kids can't go to school. It, you know, so they have reasons for not wanting to, to keep their distance. Uh, but anyway, you have just a representation there in that story. Of people doing something very simple, but in building that that trust bond uh, between uh, him and the and the other uh, the other people there. Let's see. We're going to get a little further along. Let's do you know, cross cultural evangelism. Uh, let's see what I think I get next little minutes. Yeah, we're good. I wanted to get through worldview before we're finished with our class. So we're, we're good. Not today, but we'll get there tomorrow. Uh, but anyhow, uh, let's look at cross-cultural evangelism. They got this out of Meyer's book. Uh, Meyer's one of my favorite anthropologists. A lot of the stuff that I'm, I'm talking talking about, I actually got from him. Uh, he, was, he was a very, uh, very uh, solid uh, anthropologist. Uh, but Meyer's in cross-cultural evangelism. One thing we knew about our gospel message that we uh, present is exclusive. It's the word of God. Uh, it's an exclusive word. Uh, the central task of our missions for it is to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, the redemptive act of Jesus, through which individuals may enter into a personal relationship with God. That's our task. And ours is exclusive. It's not another faith system. It's not a faith system that we offer as an option to Buddhism, it's not a, something that we offer as uh, as something to as a uh, supplement to a, a good way of life. Uh, it's exclusive. And John fourteen six says, Jesus answered, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." It's very popular right now in my country, and I think probably globally in the globalization to. For people to say, you know, all roads lead to God. You know, there's a Buddhist path to God, there's an Islamic path to God, and a Christian path to God. Uh, but we know that's not true. Uh, there's only one path to God, and that's through Jesus. And 1 Timothy 2, 5-6, through 6, For there is one God of one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. That's our imperative. We have that imperative to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why your God calls you to be a missionary. That's our imperative, but however, we have to also realize uh, that we have the imperative to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we have no imperative 
to present our own culture to anyone. Ours is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't have the right and we don't have the calling to present our culture. The very early, early missionaries, and though their hearts, uh, their going, and their zeal, nobody can, can fault them for their zeal, for their desire to go and to do, to live in situations and places where just were, were amazing what they, they did and what they lived through. You can't fault them for their zeal. But some of them, we can fault them for their method. Uh, because when they went, they tried to make the people Western. They tried those first Western missionaries that they thought, the idea was if we can bring our uh, Westernization, then we can get them to the point where they can become Christians. That's completely flawed. Uh, and not all the missionaries did that, but a fair number did. Uh, and they exported their culture. Uh, they brought their clothes, they brought their dress, they brought their morals, their, their systems of, of doing things. And as they did that, they presented the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they were like, they were presenting their culture and not just the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the challenge that we have is, unfortunately, is that we were raised uh, in, a, in our own culture, and we learned the gospel of Jesus Christ within our culture. I learned about Jesus in Durant, Florida. Uh, I learned about Jesus from people that spoke my language. I learned about... Uh, Christ from people that dressed like I did, uh, that were dressed a certain way or in my cultural context. That's how I learned the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when you learn it that way, there's things that, that come in or, or that are also part of uh, that gospel message. But we have to be careful to try to strip away those things to where we're actually just expressing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I actually don't even know if it's completely possible. Uh, because we are, and, and the Lord knew that. I mean, he knew when, when he uh, sent his son, he died on the cross, and he sent out uh, his disciples. When Jesus rose and he left those, his followers down, told them to wait on the day of Pentecost, and uh, he knew that his gospel was going to be a cross-cultural gospel. And he knew that those agents that took his gospel message around the world were also people that were part of a culture. And they were going to present the gospel so it's actually part of God's plan for us to share the gospel cross-culturally. And we need to do our best to strip away the cultural bounds that we put on the gospel and present the gospel in our, the best and truest form that we can. Uh, by, but at the same time, we realize that as we do that, we're still also, our cultural baggage is still there. And it's still part of that. Um, but the heart of the gospel is what lasts and what goes, the cultural aspects. Uh, fall away. Uh, let's see. Yeah, Braswell defines what we have to do is what we're going for is trying to bring in a contextualization and contextualize, contextualize the gospel. Uh, Braswell defines contextualization as theology done from inside the system, rendering the supercultural Christian absolutes not only in the linguistic idiom, but also within the particular forms that system takes within the system. Concepts of priority, sequence, time, space, elements of order, customs of validation and assertion, styles of emphasis and expression. Uh, that's a fairly complicated definition. <laughs> I have to, you gotta do that some so you know that I'm, I've studied anthropology, I guess. Uh, but to, to break that down, you just have to get it in, in the best way you can uh, to where you can contextualize it, where the people can understand 
the gospel because we bring our own understanding with it uh, whenever we whenever we come whenever we bring the gospel there. Uh, but as we introduce the gospel to another culture, we must attempt to lay aside our own cultural understanding and manifestation of the gospel and allow understandings and manifestations of the gospel to develop in the life of the host culture that is to become a contextualized, which is our, our next point. I can remember when I was in, I've been in Laos a number of years and, and things weren't growing like I wanted them to. And they rarely do, for me anyway, uh, as far as numbers, numerically. Uh, the group we worked with was small. Uh, it didn't seem like the people were becoming Christians. And it seemed like the more I knew about and learned about Lao culture, I realized how strange the message of the gospel is to them in their context and how strange it sounds to their ears. And I can remember just struggling with, with well, how can I strip away the westernness of the gospel? Because it's an Asian gospel. I mean, it, it's, a, it's in the Middle East. It's a, it's a gospel made for, for the entire world and trying to strip it away. And I can remember just being just uh, not depressed, but certainly discouraged. As I, I as I contemplated this and trying to figure out, you know how 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 to do it and how to put it in a way that allow people could understand it. Uh, and I can remember I came across a, a historian, a Christian historian named Andrew Walls, and I was reading his stuff. I was having had to read it for my a class I was taking, and as I did, it, it completely freed me because Andrew Walls recognized that he wrote about how the gospel of Jesus Christ in history would travel across cultures. Not just time periods, but across cultures, and that would go from one culture to another culture. And how the expression of the gospel would actually change as it went. The truth of the gospel, the central truth of the gospel stayed there, was still there, but the cultural aspects would be stripped away as it passed. And what that freed me up to, to, to come to was the fact that I just needed to do the very best I could and leave it in Jesus' hands. I would share the gospel as best I could in the loud language and use the best way that I could in telling people about Christ. And it would be up to him uh, as the time goes, how they accept that, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how it goes forward and how they use that in their expression of faith. And it was a, it was a completely freeing uh, thing, but as we introduce that gospel, you know, the development of the culture, it becomes contextualized to that people. Uh, cultural anthropology is a useful tool in separating our culture from the gospel, putting it in terms of the new culture. Uh, it won't guarantee that the message will be accepted, uh, but it will help people to understand uh, the message that they're hearing. Uh, when we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, what would we say, we, the gospel, what is the essentials of the gospel? What do people have to know or have to understand? What's the the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we use the word gospel all the time. But what's the heart of it? What do people have to comprehend to know what the gospel is? What's the heart of it? What's that? Yes, love. What else? Sin and redemption. Universal sin. You have to really recognize that there is sin before you get forgiveness of it. And that's a big hurdle for Thai people. Because uh, the, maybe it's the words we use, uh, you know, the bop, you know, the quad bop for sin. And they only use that word for if they're like a murderer or something. And so they say, for all of sin, and they'll go, not me. <laughs> well, 
Oh, no, everybody has. Well, I have it. You know, I'm not ever killed anybody. And you're like, well, yeah, that's right. But what about the little? You know, then you have to break it down. Uh, but what's some other things? Universal sin. Jesus. The only way, the resurrection, uh, the Creator, that He's Lord of all. Uh, you know, there's uh, the necessity of conversion. You have to accept Him uh, as Lord and Savior. Uh, you know, the hope of that Jesus is going to return. The hope of His return, that's all part of the gospel. And that's the message that we have to get across in the best way. Uh, not not how people need to dress, not how they need to hear the gospel, you know, that it doesn't have to be the four spiritual laws. Uh, you know, there's, there's different tools that are out there, uh, but a lot of that's just baggage that we kind of, that we put on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we have to come to what is the basis of it. But for us to be effective in ministering cross-culturally, we must be cultural relatives as well as advocates of biblical authority. Uh, you remember the, the story that we read uh, 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 I think it was yesterday of uh, the young lady that was in Kalimantan in Indonesia and she's dealing with people in mass convergence and she's trying to figure out are they really becoming Christians because the whole house does uh, you know there's some things that, that she has to, uh, to recognize uh, about that or what it concerned her really was because why she was concerned about it to begin with was because of her Western culture and what she had attached to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what she had attached to the gospel was the individual personal decision and done personally. And what she was questioning is, can that individual personal decision take place in a large group or a clan where a whole family is uh, told to become Christians? And so she was struggling with that. And uh, that's, a, that's an answer that she has to come to. Uh, because she believes that in a very personal decision, we Americans and where she is from, uh, we emphasize individualism, the rights of the individual, my individual rights. You'll hear it all the time in the United States. People are always talking about their individual rights. Uh, and so because of that, we tend to gravitate to... Uh, Portions of scripture like Acts uh, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40, where Philip ministers to the Ethiopian eunuch. <clears throat> tells him everybody has to be born again. And Philip does a one-on-one, -on -one and the Ethiopian eunuch becomes a follower of Christ. And he baptizes him. That's an individual thing. Uh, people that come from a culture where decisions are made uh, communally, they tend to gravitate to scripture that supports communal conversions which, of course, is Acts 10, verses 44 through 48, where Peter is at Cornelius' house. And Peter, and you know the whole story, and it was really Peter and realizing that Gentiles can actually become Christians too. Uh, and Peter, and recognizing that, that they can, you know, Cornelius, in the way the Scripture reads, says Cornelius became a, a follower of Jesus and the whole household. And they were all baptized. It was a communal decision. And so there's scripture support for both, uh, both situations, but we tend to gravitate to those things that support our culture and our decision-making. The importance should be on the person turning from their sinful ways towards Christ, uh, not in their how they do it. You know, it's, it's all about them turning from what they were doing before and turning towards Jesus. Whether they do that as a group or do that individually, for me, it doesn't matter. 
Uh, what's important is that they turn away from their sinful ways and turn towards Jesus in his ways. Uh, meeting times is another example. Uh, Sunday morning is good uh, for us to, to meet. In most places in the world, that's a holiday now. There's free time. So Sunday morning in most countries works just fine. But it doesn't work well in all countries. In Muslim countries, uh, Sunday is, a, is the start of the week of work day. And so churches would have a hard time meeting on Sundays. Uh, and But it's, it tends to work. Uh, the style of your building, the chairs, worship style, music, all of those things are culturally influenced. Uh, I used to travel. My first term when we lived in Udon, and I couldn't do a whole lot uh, with the Thai language. I would travel to these village churches. And there were several churches that uh, were planted through crusade, and they never had a full-time pastor. And I used to love, or they had very short time, and they largely grew up in their expression of Christianity on their own. And as you go to most of our churches in Thailand, and it seems to be this way most around the world as I go to evangelical churches, they're all pretty much the same. You sing, worship, uh, someone will pray, will take up an offering, there'll be a sermon, uh, maybe an altar call or time to respond, and everybody goes home. But they're all pretty much the same, maybe different languages, uh, but most of the time they're, they're pretty much the same, and Thai services are, are like that. They follow very much of the Western pattern, or the pattern that was given from the first missionaries that came. Uh, but I went to this one village, and I really enjoyed going there, and we, and we went, and it, was, uh, and it was a real village church, you know, grass roof, chickens in and out, you know, all over, and uh, it was really neat because the... Uh, they do testimony time, which is ties do that sometime in church where people get up. You know, what did the would some, does someone have a testimony? Something the Lord had done. But what was unique to this church was that people didn't speak their testimony; they sang their testimony. And in the northeast part of, of Thailand, they do what they call malam, and it's a regional type of singing specific to that part. Laos and Thailand both do this, and in their traditional music, they always sing stories. And they would sing, you know, then about all kinds of stuff. And it was an oral tradition, and that's the way they passed down knowledge was through music. And so the church had taken on the, the habit of singing their testimonies. And people would come prepared. They'd have it written down. Uh, ladies would have their whole testimony written down in the notebook. And so whenever they would get up, they would start to sing. And it was fun because it would be, it would set the stage. And it would be like, uh, you know, I, I, I can't sing, so I won't even give it a try. Uh, but uh, it's a tonal language, and the notes would go with the tone of the words, and it's got a very unique sound. Uh, I may try to find something online so you can hear it tomorrow, because I've got to do that today. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's tonal and kind of whiny sounding, and, you know, but, but it would set the stage and say something like, you know, I got up on Thursday, and... Uh, my hip was sore, my, I went to the market anyway, or I had a bad headache, and, you know, or I went to the market, I didn't have any money, and I needed something, or they would set the stage of the problem, and they would do it real, it's real slow, and, and kind of drawn out, uh, but then when God answered their prayer, boom, then it would take off, you know, the beat would change, they would start singing really fast, and upbeat, and everybody would clap, <laughs> you know, and, and I was like, this is great, and they would do that, and everybody have a story like that. And that was the only church I've ever been to that would do that. They took what was a natural part of their life in that village and uh, the way they would do music, 
and they incorporated it into the life of the church. And I just think how cool that was. And I would try to get other churches to do it, but it would seem weird to them because they never done it before. Uh, but it was neat, and they would write it all out, and, and it was always fun. People would get up and clap, and, and it was always uh, a fun thing. But they had taken that and made it part of their worship service. Uh, but it's important that we do our best to separate our culture from the gospel. And that we're not exporting and preaching our culture, uh, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it will uh, always come through uh, our gospel. Okay. I think we actually do have time to look at worldview a little bit today. I'm rushing a little bit. Does anybody have any questions or comments? Okay. Is there any chance that we Oh, without a doubt. And we do it without even knowing it. Uh, we'll do it sometimes and we won't even know it. As much, I don't say our gospel message as much as we mix it with our forms. Because what's comfortable to us is our form of worship. And it's comfortable to us because that's the way we grew up. And so we take that uh, when we go. Now, I, I believe that that's a natural thing uh, to take place. And I also think that uh, the, the churches that receive it or the cultures that receive the gospel, especially for the first time, will receive it, like, in, especially in forms of worship and in preaching and teaching style, the way it's presented to them. But in time, it changes. Uh, like I've noticed in Thailand, in the Thailand Assemblies of God, now we, in the American Assemblies of God, we never wear robes. In church, you know, the ecclesiastical robes. Uh, in the in Methodist churches, they do it. Uh, some other, but in our tradition, we don't wear robes. Uh, but I, and so, when I was a missionary in Thailand, the Thai church looked pretty much like an American church. Uh, but I've noticed as I see pictures of events, uh, uh, Thais like to wear robes. And so, for like graduation, weddings, baptism, uh, baby dedication, special events. Uh, the Thai senior pastor is now wearing an ecclesiastical robe. And I found that kind of interesting because, you know, robes, what do priests wear in, in Thailand? The, the Buddhist priests, they wear robes. Now, now, I will say that our guys, that our pastors are not wrapping up in, you know, it's not like a Buddhist uh, uh, monk wears. But yet, that, that's a value for them, uh, and they like that formality, even though it didn't come from the American missionaries that, that were first bringing the gospel. Uh, they change that form of worship. And so I think in time that takes place. But that's just one of the kind of a subtle change that I've noticed from a distance. And even a missionary was telling me, uh, who's the area director there, he was going to go do something. It was an ordination service or something. He was the preacher. And so the, uh, the district superintendent called him and asked him to bring his robe. And he said, uh, Pastor, I don't have a robe. And he said, oh, we'll get you one. <laughs> so they wanted the missionary to be here in row two. Uh, and so it's, it's one of those, you know, subtle changes uh, within the church in the form. But, yeah, I think we take this form of worship, but, and, but the Lord expects that. or the, That's part of it. Uh, that, that, that's part of uh, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We share it as we understand it. Uh, but we need to do, what we have to do is try to cut out the, as much as we can, exporting our culture. Uh, whenever we do that, and try to recognize things that are just different about the culture we're in. And dress is one of those things. 
uh, dresses, you know, the way people dress, that, that's a cultural issue. And the way they dress to worship will be a cultural issue as well. Uh, and so, you know, just try not to bring in, it, it may be a challenge, you know, but try not to bring in, you know, we just have to do our best to try to cut it out as much as we can. Our culture so that we can get the gospel there. But in a lot of ways, especially our forms of worship, they're going to be exported along with that. Okay. Any other questions, comments? Yes, ma'am. Different language, according to the different culture. Yes, so for us, you know, actual sin is a sin, but it's one culture, it's not a sin. I've struggled with that too, uh, because in uh, in some societies and where I've worked, uh, it was perfectly understood that when money flowed through like a government official's hands, uh, they were going to get a percentage. You know, everybody knew that. You know, it was just kind of, and it wasn't. I don't even know. It wasn't necessarily seen as good, but at any rate, uh, you know that that happened. But there's other things too, like you're saying that it's not sin. Uh, for them in their, their culture, but it's sin to us, and we, we recognize it as sin. Uh, it's a tough, you just have to, uh, uh, there's no quick answer. You have to pray, and uh, and use scripture as much as you can. So, and scripture for yourself, to, to recognize, is this actually sin? You know, is this concept sin, or is it something that's culturally determined for me, that this is sin? Uh, and there's things that in, in my background because of where I was raised that's just sin and I'll give you an example and I, I usually shy away from, from giving the example of, uh, of alcohol uh, but uh, you know in, in the American Assemblies of God and where I grew up to take any amount of alcohol wine, uh, beer I mean the smallest smallest amount it's a sin and it's you know it, it's seen as Christians just don't do that it's a culturally accepted thing. If someone was to see me, even though, or they see someone that they recognize as a Christian, and they see them in town somewhere, and they've got a glass of wine or a beer or something in their hand where I grew up, anyone that sees them will assume that they're no longer Christians. Uh, they'll assume immediately they're not Christians anymore. Uh, that's Now, that's the southeast part of the United States, not all the United States. But where I grew up and in my environment, that's the assumption right away. And so that's what I was raised in. And so, and uh, and for me, it is a sin. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you straight up. Uh, for me, it, it, it would be, it, it's incredibly simple. For, for me, uh, that's the way I was raised. And my, my dad, as I mentioned earlier, my dad was not a Christian uh, until I was uh, 17 years old. And uh, he drank alcohol uh, when I was growing up. He was not a Christian, and he, and neither one of my parents were Christians when they got married. My mom came to the Lord. And we were always in church with her, but I was raised around alcohol. And so I saw the effect that alcohol had on people and on the family. Now, my dad always kept a good job. He always took care of us financially. He was a great provider. 
Uh, we had a good middle-class upbringing in the United States. But alcohol, even though that's the case, still has an effect on the family, has an effect on, on the person that, that's drinking. Uh, and they're different. They're different. They just are. Uh, they're, they're different kind of people. Uh, or they act different. Because uh, I know from my dad when he stopped drinking, and he stopped drinking probably a year or a year and a half before he became a Christian. Uh, but when he stopped drinking, he really was a different kind of guy, different person. And so for me, it's wrong. But then I start working with a, uh, uh, in Laos, we have a, and I have that background I come in with. I work with the uh, French Assemblies of God uh, mission. They send a missionary, wonderful guy, wonderful family. And of course, in the French Assemblies of God, in their culture, uh, they, they drink wine. You know, they don't drink uh, to, his, uh, he says it's, it's a sin to get drunk, but not to drink a glass of wine. And so my question was, well, how do you know? And, you know, where do you draw the line? He goes, oh, you can tell. And like he, and he would say, it was funny one time, he was talking in front of his wife. Now, his mom and dad are not Christians. And uh, he's, the, he's the first Christian in his family. He said, we were talking one night, he said, you know, he said, he said I, my parents drink wine. He said, but I've never one time seen them drunk. And his wife spoke up, who's French. And she said, yeah, but how would you know they drink so much? You know, they, they drink all the time. How can you distinguish, you know? What is sober? Uh, but, uh, and so I, I come with him. He comes from a background that one glass is okay. And so we had to come to a working relationship with each other and uh, how we would share. And already by the time we were in Laos, it was accepted within the, the Lao church, the Lao evangelical church and Lao Christians, that alcohol was a sin. Uh, that alcohol, you know, if you take alcohol, I guess because the American missionaries beat the French there. I don't know. Uh, but it was already accepted within the church. And so while he was in, in Laos, we came to an agreement that he wouldn't drink. And, and for him, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like uh, he had to have a glass of wine. He just said, we, we had an agreement that in public or any time that Lao people were around, that he and his wife would not drink uh, wine. And so we did fine. We worked together for six years with no issue. But that's a culturally determined thing because in Scripture, you know, and I, and I you know, you... I just shouldn't even say it. It's heresy to say so, but it'd be nice if the first miracle wasn't turning water into wine. <laughs> and I know there's a big debate about it. You know, from where I'm from, we would prefer another first miracle, you know, something else. Or we would rather it just be said grape juice or something. I don't know. But unfortunately, until there was a man named the Welch's grape juice, if you squeezed a grape, it fermented. If you squeeze the grape, it immediately starts to ferment to some level. And so, you know, there, I'm... I, I'm, a, I'm a believer that it was not a high alcohol content, nothing like what we have now available in the market, uh, what they had in Jesus' day. And I've read uh, scholars on it, so I agree with them. You know, it was wine, but not like what we have now, that alcohol content was not the same. Uh, however, that's one of those things uh, that for me, when I see it, and I still struggle with it. You know, if I'm ever around, you know, I had really close friends, the international guys that I played uh, golf with all the time uh, in Laos. And uh, they would occasionally, uh, they want to drink a beer. You know, I remember one time we were somewhere, and a good friend of mine was sitting across the table, and, and he asked me, because uh, he'd never done it in front of me. Uh, he said, uh, you know, so he asked, said, would it offend you if, if I ordered a beer? And so I thought, well, I'm going to be honest. I said, yes, it would. <laughs> I would be offended. And so he didn't drink a beer. And so I appreciated that, because I, I could have lied and said, no, that's okay, you go ahead. But in reality, I would have been offended. 
because he had heard me preach lots of times. I thought, now you know how I feel. <laughs> so I wouldn't be offended. And so he didn't do it. But it, it's one of those things uh, that, you know, that's one of the easy ones that we can pick on that is, it seems to be culturally determined. And so you have to kind of decide what that is. But that is uh, one of the things we have to depend on the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, uh, to show people uh, what is right and wrong within cultural situations, but also recognize the fact that we bring some things in uh, that we've always been told were wrong or sinful, and we need to, to back everything up with Scripture uh, as best you can. Um, but there are times when you do have to confront. You know, I've been in some very uncomfortable situations where we had to deal with some situations where you know sin was there, even though it was accepted within the culture. It's not accepted within the culture in the church. Uh, because it, it's biblically wrong. Uh, and so it makes for some very uncomfortable times as a missionary, uh, but we have to deal with it in love uh, as best we can in acceptance. Uh, it's, a, it's, a real, it's a real challenge for us. Uh, any other questions or comments? Yes, sir, Benjamin. I think you agree with you, Benjamin. It's key. You have to show them. You can't just say, uh, well, this is right or wrong because that's because the way I, I think it is. You have to be able to show it and be grounded in the Word of God. It depends on the biblical absolutes uh, that we can find in Scripture and that we can help the guide us, the guide our lives. Uh, it, it has to be there. Okay. You know, I think today, since I took five minutes over, and if I start on worldview, because I want to start with this scripture, let's start with their, their tomorrow. Uh, and while I know we'll get to worldview, I don't think we're going to get to status and roles, but uh, we'll get as far as we can uh, uh, in, the, in the class. Uh, so I'm going to let you go, what is on my watch, four minutes early uh, today. You've been a good class. I was a lot more lecture today. I didn't have any, any funny videos. I thought I was going to get to the <laughs> Uh, sorry about that. I didn't get there. I was all set up with my speakers. Uh, but I'll get there tomorrow. I'll show you a video tomorrow. Uh, Y'all been a good class, done well, paying attention. Dr. Day. Uh, I just want to give out um, copies of the internet passwords. Oh, um, I'm sorry it took so long, but for some reason it took um, the IT office a while to get this ready. So you just take them. Listen, um, for the non APTS students, because those of you already studying here have your uh, internet access. So. Um, do you have yours already? Yes. Okay. Okay. We'll just actually need one. Do you need, do you need you one? Yeah, I'm not Okay. Let me, uh, let me no, get okay. it because I'm having extra. So. No, no problem. I'll just um, use it. Is everybody have one? Thank you. I've got one out there. Okay. Very nice. So now I guess the school can figure out who's downloading movies. <laughs> <laughs> when I was on faculty here, that was always the we had the slowest internet in the world uh, as a campus. I know it's, it's got to be better now. But five, six years ago, in every faculty meeting, somebody would be complaining. I think the students are downloading movies. It's better now. Yeah. We've got hundreds of thousands of cases now. Yeah. Uh, in the last three or four years. 
Yeah, but that was always the discussion. It's those students downloading movies. But now that they know your passcode, they can actually figure out who's downloading movies. <laughs> <laughs> but no, y'all been a great group. Okay, are there extra copies of these? Uh, they're going to get extra copies of these in that. So I just don't need to have that. Okay, you ready for break? Ready? Take off. Go ahead. Uh, snacks are over there, I think, so...